to your intro like last time, yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so welcome to the LAC uh, with me, Nina Power, Helen Rollins, and Benjamin Studebaker. This week it is uh, me and Helen on our own again, uh, as occasionally happens, and we, you know, take it in turns to be a three or a two. Um, and this week we are in the A side talking about regime aesthetics with with reference to what we might call i suppose uh instagram poetry um and also uh i suppose politically acceptable poetry or poetry that's that's designed to uh add a kind of ideological emotional literary supplement to the to the <laughs> regime and and then I think in, in the B-side, we will be talking about therapy and mm-hmm. uh, the current state of therapeutic practice in relation to political questions, yes. amongst other things. Sounds so, interesting. It does. It sounds fascinating. <laughs> Who are these people and what do they want and why am I listening to them? Um Okay, so Helen, if you would like to begin. Right, okay, well, I haven't got a I haven't like got an essay this week because um I think last yeah. time we just did a more informal chat, um, which kind of worked. But I we were deciding what to do this week. Um and um we decided we didn't want to do a film, we wanted to do something that was sort of like um biteable. <laughs> What's no like bite-sized, yes. that's the word, bite-sized. Um and, you know, what is more bite-sized than the Instagram poetry that we see these days? Um, you know, obviously there's like there's one um, well-known, particularly well-known um, exponent of said type of poetry. But this isn't really just about that. I think this is about all kinds of, um, I don't know. I mean, you, you're, you're more the poetess. So you would have more <laughs> maybe knowledge about like what defines poetry. But, you know, I've seen in 2021 and in the past number of years, I think it started for me, the annoyance, or the annoyment I get from slam poetry. When you see all these, um, these ads that started about 10 years ago, um, and they have this sort of like either this like um, national pride type uh, bad poetry voiceover. Or this, this is one where it's like different categories of person, poetry voiceover. So it's like, for the snacker, the packer, the, um, I don't know, something that rhymes with that. You know, they do these different things for the like hippie tree hugger and the uh, rough mudder runner, you know, that kind of thing. I don't know if you notice this. And it would happen all the time. Ads are quite funny because you, you get these aesthetic trends in ads. And we've yeah. talked a little bit about, in the past episodes, I think, about, you know, what is art and what are sort of aesthetic trends. And I think um, in ads, from the filmmaking point of view, you get these, these you know, very, very nice to look at aesthetic trends. And this is, you know, an auditory aesthetic trend, potentially, these, these um, poems. And they're, they're just, they're so repeated to the extent we were like, how can you not see the similar, you know, this sort of like, is it plagiarism when everyone does it? I don't know. But it, there's something about poetry, this kind of poetry where like an authority is lent to it because it, 
because it has a poetry aesthetic. So obviously we have these, a lot of terms that are being developed um, in terms of kind of um, quote unquote theory. And, um, you know, if it's almost like if it rhymes or if it has a sort of like inner alliteration or some kind of onomatopoeia, it's like, oh, it's an actual like scientific term. You know, um, I'm trying to think of an example, but you know, these sort of made up terms that as if they are some sort of encyclopedic definition, but they're someone's invention. And they have this sort of like rhythm or a, for, a sort of aesthetic to them, a poeticism to them that like points to officialdom. And I think there's something about poetry or the aesthetic of poetry that it points to a kind of quote unquote transcendent truth because it has. Mm -hmm. a vibe um <laughs> but really when you read or listen to these not only is the aesthetic very grating because the sort of trick the the visual or the phonic trick is revealed really quickly but also what is being written is generally highly ideological um i do think a tell i always say with ideology is um heartwarming heartwarming mm. I think it tends to be very ideological uh, versus like actually emotional, sensitive, thought-provoking, moving. It's a heartwarmingness. Um, but these are just sort of like um, cliched truths, quote unquote, that are, that are sort of um, given this veneer of um, heft with this weird poeticism. And I don't know that much about slam poetry other than uh, several years ago at this event with some friends and it was a sort of a philosophy event and people were giving different types of interventions with like different, you know, artists and musicians and talks and stuff. And someone stood up and gave a, a slam poem. And I was sitting next to a good friend of mine and we, you know, the first, the first rendition, we were like, oh, that's, that's good. That's very impressive. You know, it, it really punches you in the gut. It's sort of um, clever little tricks that you think like, gosh, that's, that's very clever. Um, but the second time it's repeated, you start, the, the, the repetition makes you see the tricks that are much less clever than they seemed in the first place, mm -hmm. which I think is, is kind of a bit dangerous for sort of this kind of ideological art because it's very obviously a trick, a little, you know, um, what do you call it? The patter of the, you know, the, the magician that is ideology, you know, tricking you into sort of thinking and seeing things in a certain way. And the patter is this, is this sort of um, slam poetry, let's say. Um, and you hear the sort of emphasis, the end of the line, the, the fast and the slow, the loud and the quiet, the internal rhyme. And really, it's just, it's just a shimmer. And obviously, there is a, there's a very famous example um, last year um, during the inauguration. And the response to it, I have to say, I, I think pointed to what we've been talking about a lot, um, the ideological racism of liberalism, which is somebody who we consider this orientalist view of an individual who personifies um, a, a, a proximity to essence, an undivided nature and a wisdom, the wisdom of little children. Um, so the youth, the appearance, the smallest in stature, the um, speech impediment is all very important to this because this is, this is the ideology of the age. You know, when people point out um, racism everywhere. <laughs> I hate to do it as well, but there is a racism somewhere and it is Orientalism. Um, 
And this kind of, um, I call it weak art, uh, easy, I don't know, easy art, is that what it is? Non-art appearance of art is something I think where you find a lot of this Orientalism in terms of um, a truth being pointed out. So an elevation of truth, of a truth that is really cliched and actually ideological to the status of something um, ethereal, transcendent and important. And I think all of these things, the youth of the performer, obviously we see slam poetry, I think it's like a, a young person's game generally, I think. I think all of this contributes to sort of the, um, what we see as the ideological pattern for this kind of thing. Okay. Thank you, Helen. Um, I'm going to, I wonder if we should perhaps read some of the poetry that we have in mind. I'm, I'm going to experimentally attempt to read some of uh, Amanda Gorman's inauguration poem. What do you think? Just... Okay. We, what we should maybe say is this, this isn't about Amanda Gorman per se. This is the kind no. of art. And I'm sure... No, it, yeah. exactly. But, but I, th- I think there's something also, you know, like precisely you were saying about um, isolating and identifying, let's say, the gimmicks or, mm-hmm. you know, the tricks in the yes. text. So, yeah. So this is, this is obviously not, uh, you know, I don't know anything about this, this person um, other than that she was, was 22. She read this... Um, uh, this poem at Joe Biden's swearing in, you know, I, uh, that's, that's it. I, I mean, there was some controversy over the translators and that this also feeds into what you were saying about the, the Orientalism, the racism of contemporary liberalism in the sense that the idea, you know, even though we share an alphabet and a language, you know, whether we're talking about translating within the same alphabet, the idea that the way some people put the alphabet together has a different essence than other people, such that even if someone is a highly trained linguist and translator, that they somehow won't be able to translate the work of somebody else because of their identity. I mean, this is insane, right? You know, I mean, this is a level of, you know, uh, uh, yeah, on, of race, ontological racism that is so profound mm-hmm. that it mm-hmm. actually detracts from the character of all of us as speaking beings. Yeah. You know, and, and basically suggests that we cannot understand one another in any case, you know, that mm-hmm. there is simply, uh, a, you know, an impossibility of communication, even with the between the most highly trained uh, translators and so on. And I think there's a there's the, there's this kind of increasing confusion, not only between, let's say, the artist and their work, such that we have this new puritanical moralism, such that, you know, if anyone ever has ever done anything bad or said anything wrong, then their entire corpus is then you know supposed to be consigned to the flames in some cases literally people calling for book burning um you know and on the other side so th- so the kind of inherent goodness of the artist must be preserved and the, and the link between the artist and the work must be completely fused which then gets confused with the idea of a kind of um attempt to make reparations or restoration for historical asymmetries so the idea that a black poet must only be translated by a black poet in another country or by, by a black translator in another country um, as a way of somehow making good on historical inequity in the present, right, at this kind of very micro level. And this, of course, is not the same as saying, you know, we that, that, that there's a collective question of who gets to do what work, when and how and how they get paid and what the working conditions are and, you know, who has access to forms of um 
training such as translation skills and and all of that kind of thing you know it's a it's a micro uh vengeance <laughs> we could say um you know and i think worlds like the poetry world or the art world you know are incredibly prone to these kinds of gestures you know because in a way they're so um they're so flimsy they're so insecure as worlds and that you know they're so tied up with very ancient feelings of envy and you know the desire to be successful and rivalry that any kind of little thing can be used to you know try to i don't know get ahead or or destroy your enemy or whatever um and you know this gets played out over and over and over again and I, so i think there is something to be said by looking at you know the the text though itself because after all there are there are still words right there's there's still these these texts um and they do tell us something perhaps um you know and of course you could say i mean no doubt there are there are people who would say you know a white person can't or shouldn't read work written by a black person or something like this you know that there would be um a, an argument to be made for a kind of um you know a segregated politics of purity if you like such that you know all forms of um exchange are potentially forms of contamination or theft, if you saw what I mean, you know. But but this this can't possibly. I mean, even even from the standpoint of selling lots of copies of something, right? From from a purely commercial standpoint, it doesn't make sense to um, segregate literature in this way. I mean, that you know, we have to say that there is a universalizing impulse in language. You know, if we, if we are trained to speak English, you know, and we and someone else speaks English, it's the same language. You know, calling something poetry doesn't dignify it, and it doesn't essentialize it in some radical way. You know, it, it's 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 if if someone can understand you, then they can understand you. You know, mm. and I think these kind of pretend forms of roadblocks—the idea that we simply can't understand someone else's experience, even though they're describing it to you—or even worse, that we can't criticize something that someone's written because they are part of like a, a non-criticizable class. You know, I mean, is from any standpoint, you know, absolutely horrific. I mean, it is assigning uh, the capacity to somebody of of that, like that of a of a of a child, you know, or an yes, animal. Yes, the worst. Like, I think once it's, again, it's profoundly racist. Yeah, I, I mean, of course it is. You know, and and like we can talk about the tyranny of low expectations, and you know how even this kind of uh, I don't know mild liberal, uh, you know, position of literary criticism that I'm sort of outlining. Um, you know, basically makes you a Nazi these days. I mean, <laughs> you know, like if you say, like if people put work out into the world, then then it can be read, it should be read, and it could it can be criticised. You know, I mean, this is the this is the public sphere, if you like. Um, so so in any case, I'm going to read, um, I suppose, the final paragraph of this poem, and I'm not going to read it necessarily in a sarcastic way or anything like that i'm going to just try and read it as it's written in a neutral my phone as well yeah in a neutral um in a neutral as possible way i suppose and i haven't practiced reading this at all so i'm simply going to read it as it is so you know and this is from um january last year yeah no 
sorry, not this, this year. year no, this year, this year, January this year. Yeah. My God, sorry, I'm, I'm losing <laughs> the plot time wise. I was I was trying to remember what year it was yesterday. Oh, I, no, I, I cannot believe it's, it's no, no. I mean, this is horrendous. part of the regime. It's trying to destroy, disorientate, yeah, your relation to time. Every, so, yeah, every, sorry. yeah, sorry. We can talk about that later because I think that's no, important. no. But this, this is mental. <laughs> okay, so so like this is we're now in August. Okay, and we're talking about a poem that was you know given at the inauguration in January. So we're already full into COVID regime uh, era here. Okay, so sorry, the, the poem is, is, is by Amanda Gorman and it's called The Hill We Climb. And the final paragraph, uh, stanza, sorry, I should say. So let us leave behind a country better than the one we were left. With every breath from my bronze pounded chest, we will raise this wounded world into a wondrous one. We will rise from the golden hills of the west. We will rise from the windswept northeast where our forefathers first realised revolution. We will rise from the lake-rimmed cities of the Midwestern states. We will rise from the sun-baked south. We will rebuild, reconcile and recover. In every known nook of our nation, in every corner called our country, our people, diverse and beautiful, will emerge battered and beautiful. When day comes, we step out of the shade, aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it, for there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. So reading this as just, you know, as it's up on my laptop screen, the word that stands out for me the most is rebuild. You know that this is written a poem presented in the context of, you know, post uh, yeah, post Trump, but also in relation to the Great Reset, <laughs> and you know we're talking about a period in which we saw the BLM uh, protests uh, last summer, um, and obviously Biden's you know ideological presentation and sheen is deeply tied up with not only being anti-Trump but also pro BLM pro all of the uh you know excesses of identity politics um you know even though well i mean biden doesn't exist i mean biden is a is isn't is nothing he's a he's a he's a he's a snowman i want to say a telegram no i don't mean a telegram he's a hologram, hologram. he's a hologram <laughs> biden is a hologram i mean you know he he is you know he's he's a, he's he's clearly you know suffering from some form of Old age. Yeah, age-related mental lack of acuity. Mm -hmm. Um, So in a sense, it's nothing even to do with Biden. We're talking about the regime. We're talking about what the, you know, and the ideological um, supplement. So this is an acceptable, clearly highly acceptable form of ideological supplement. Um, It's not as badly written as some of the Instagram poetry we might might refer Mm. to um you know it's it's not actually um, reading it i was fairly i was sort of like that is actually not bad yeah it's not bad. it's you know this isn't this isn't like a, a great you know piece of work that will join the canon but it's not it's not terrible and and you know and actually there's some some it has really nice imagery and it is very um yeah it is it is well written it's it's like a defanged Maya Angelou. It's a mm-hmm. bit like mm-hmm. um and I rise. Yeah. Still I rise, sorry. Still I rise, you yeah. know. Still I rise. It's a bit like yeah. that. It's 
but it's sort of toned down, you know. Mm. I mean, even though it's talking about revolution and rising and, you know, I mean, it, it does have this rebuild, reconcile and recover. You know, there is something kind of conciliatory about it um, as well. And it's not very specific, we have to say. You know, it, it, it doesn't point yeah. to specific harms or, you know, it's it's an attempt to say there is hope in this fusion of the recognition of, you know, bad things <laughs> and this new regime represented by the telegram hologram Biden. Um so, but yeah, yeah I mean, the, well, the, the line in it. Sorry, yeah. Go on. No, no, go on. I was going to say that the line in it about about um, you know the the um, where our forefathers first realised revolution. You know, this isn't this isn't throwing out quote unquote old white men. You know, yeah. is there is you know there it is pointing to, um, yeah, something beyond pure identity politics. Yes, exactly. Um, but the thing I wanted to say about your uh, discussion earlier about, you know, this idea of the bite size, that it really strikes me. I mean, I agree. And I, I think, you know, that that kind of, um, you know, Instagram poetry is is kind of like the, the sort of um, script you might get on a cushion, you know, that's been sewn by a machine, except maybe the machine has died of died of sadness because it's had to write this unbearably awful poem on a on a bit of um soft soft furnishing mm -hmm. you know and i i think you know if we read some of the rupee car stuff i don't know how you pronounce her surname which obviously makes me a terrible person um do you know how to pronounce her surname properly uh, yeah it would be rupee core right i mean rupee i have a Kaur. friend who has a, the same surname so right okay great so rupee core right so if you read some of her poems they're a bit like um this one you know so they're all written in lowercase you know like a text message the line breaks e don't necessarily. E uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they don't make any. Uh, you know, you could send them in a little text message, and they've got little pictures on them. So I, this one, I don't know what it's called. Uh, it just says, "I do not need the kind of love that is draining. I want someone who energizes me." I mean, that's a poem. Um, I mean. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it serves, it's got like a negative Zen Cohen effect. Like, you know, when you read those, those Zen Cohen things and you're, you're put into a state of like twing, you know, like the sound of one hand clapping, or you're supposed to visualize or conceptualize <laughs> things mm. that, you know, are sort of create this like, mm, um, they're like that, but really negative. It's kind of like the anti thought that makes it possible to live in a regime. You know, it's like that. It's mm -hmm. not even cognitive dissonance, it's like cognitive emptiness. You know, and, and I think this kind of the point about bite sized things, you know, if you buy a packet of bite size, I don't know, crunchy bits or something. The thing is, you always end up eating more than you would have done had you eaten the original crunchy bar. So you, you feel sick, you know, so the bite size, the consumption of bite sized things is designed to make mm -hmm. you eat more of the thing in small amounts, but ultimately in large amounts. That then yes. makes you feel incredibly ill, and it's the dialectic more of the fun size. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you know, and everybody knows this, right? It's like one of those no, no things. You know, do you know it? And you know it, and yeah. you know. So the so the bite size poem, like this, you know, in a way, you know, and and it's a kind of combination of like the haiku, uh, the text message, um, you know, with the little the little pictures that are like. I don't know, illustrations from children's books or, 
you know, it's like this fusion of different forms in this attempt to kind of create this, you know, new genre, as it were, although that's sort of maybe dignifying it a little bit. Um, and, you know, and also the self-help, we have to say. So like soft furnishing self-help, you know, like this one, you know, you have so much, but are always hungry for more. Stop looking up at everything you don't have and look around at everything you do. I mean, you know, it could be written by uh, by a machine, a very unhappy machine, you know. Yeah. And I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's the kind of thing that makes you feel like you're, you're Theodore Adorno, like eating a lemon, this stuff, you know, because it's so... It's so excruciatingly like, and you're like this bitter motherfucker who's like, you know, and someone says, oh, come and see some slab poetry or some experimental theatre. And you're like waiting for it to begin. And you're like, yeah, you know, <laughs> and then you just you just feel like this sort of in a horrible inversion of criticism that's going on in your body. And, you know, to, to be fair to slam poetry. At the very least, you can say the worst slam poetry has a form of passion behind it, even if it's horrible, you know, even if it's like grotesque rhyming, you know, like a sort of 15 year old stoner might come up with when they're like, you know, feeling a bit angry at the world. And they're like, you know, uh, you know, you don't know how bad things are out there in the world, you know, whatever. I mean, just at least it's an attempt to sort of try and encapsulate a, a feeling of injustice yeah. or opposition or something like this. I mean, this this clearly, you know, has has none of none of that. You know, there is no emotion. There's no hu- There's no humanness in these. Somehow, you know, they are literally, you know, an AI making soft furnishings. You know, writing these this script, and. You know, I suppose the, one of the interesting questions, if we're talking about regime aesthetics, just to finish on this point in the first bit, is like, you know, what is what is permissible to say, you know? And, and like, we know, obviously, that there are many, many, many things that people now unconsciously or consciously know they cannot talk about and should not say, right? So we've already entered into, very obviously, uh, regimes of self-censorship, you know, the expansion of hate speech legislation, you know, punishment for anybody who says steps out of line in terms of particular regime statements or particular permitted thoughts um so we're already past that point but then if the regime needs this aesthetic supplement which it does in some way not only to sell things but also to in a way uh, provide give itself a veneer of cover story right because a civilization that completely dispenses with the poetic is a is a machine, you know, it's not a civilization as we would understand it. Uh, you know, every civilization has to try and tell stories about itself, right? So what story is the regime t- saying about itself, but in these in these poems? It's saying absolutely nothing. It's saying the most minimal things you can possibly imagine. It's not talking about anything specific. It's vaguely alluding to uh, emotion in a certain way. Um, but in this kind of gestural self-help sort of way, you know, that that in a way that feeds very much into a kind of therapeutic culture that we're going to talk about, I think, in the in the B side. Um, you know, it's apolitical, really, although in a sense it's kind of almost the most political, precisely because it's completely deprived of um, any political um, sentiment, you know. And, and I'm not by any means saying that all poetry has to be political. In fact, uh, a lot of political poetry is terrible. Um, I mean, of course it is. Um, 
but yeah, it it's so I don't know, what what are we to make of 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 this, you know? Mm-hmm. And for those for the effects that it has, I suppose, on thought, you know, and I think this idea of the negative Zen Cohen, the one that doesn't lead to enlightenment but leads to uh dystopia, further dystopia is maybe something here. Yes, I've, I I got out my notebook and started making notes because there's so much that you you said that I want to sort of like um, circle back on. <laughs> <laughs> but no, the thing is, you know, this question of what is political, I actually do think, it's my opinion, it could be wrong, that when we experience political, something that's aggravatingly political, it isn't political. And that's why it's aggravating. It is. It remains in the aesthetic, and it doesn't do the full dialectic of going back to the universal. So it it is precisely apolitical when it locks down the universal contradiction into some opponent making. That's not political. That is preventing the political from happening. Um, mm. But yeah, it's interesting as well the fact that you say these this bite size thing and the you call it écœurant in in French like it's it's deheartening when you when you feel sick it's like. Mm. you know disheartening in a way <laughs> but then you get this this multiplication i mean these are these are posted like daily and as i say you know when with this multiplication of this the slam poetry tricks you see the tricks so fast and it's it's sort of it like washes it all away but it's still there it's very it's very strange but um also as well i do think yeah, i think that point is really interesting about this the, this sort of like negative zen and this yeah. is all we've talked about this a lot in terms of like discourse and dialogue that you you require another always uh, and we live in a society and we'll talk about this a lot on the on the b side i think where therapy has stepped in i think step, therapy obviously we have different types of therapy some good some bad and i think the criticism of therapy is misplaced because i think it's more a symptom than a cause or at least two things can be true at the same time i think it is um a symptom as well as a as an ideological cause. But I think we are in a world where, as Benjamin talks about, our roles have been so eroded, our family structures are so eroded, our civil society is so eroded, um, governments are underfunded because uh, they tie themselves to capital, now capital is government and nobody can tax the corporations and wealthy individuals. Uh, capital mobility. We have eroded everything that gives our life meaning meaning in terms of connection with other people. And this is what's left. It's this sort of, it's this self-pontificating, righteous demand that is always negative and always depressing. Like, I want to have a relationship where I'm treated well. It's like, well, a relationship, obviously we, there are many forms of toxic relationship. And of course, in a world where material relations rule supreme, as Mark said, I texted this to somebody the other day and I'm going to get it up on my phone now, um, you know, uh, a little bite size statement where is it uh got it the other day real time hashtag real time okay maybe it's too far back maybe i send it weeks ago oh here we go the bourgeoisie has torn away from the family its sentimental veil and has reduced the family relation to a mere money relation. Okay, so a lot of the problems that we have in terms of relationships today are to do with the fact that it has become so transactional and the transaction makes it anxiety producing and traditional, you know, again, talking about therapy as a symptom as well as a cause, you know, there's a lot of quote unquote leftist movements today that destroy the things that are a symptom 
rather than a cause. So family as a symptom, as a reaction mechanism to protect against the ravages of the market. And if we get rid of the family, but we don't get rid of the market, well, we're just opening ourselves up to the absolute precarity and anxiety and horror of a purely transactional world. So this is very one-sided. And I find it interesting that when we talk about leftism, often this is something that has nothing, not a vision of the market system or an understanding of it at all, which is very strange. Um, But yes, this sort of personal outrage Issue, and we can, I can understand why people do feel personally outraged now because we're also personally affected by this move. But what we really need is connection with other people. And this comes from a political uh, change whereby we tax, we find a way to tax correctly, we find a way to, to deal with capital mobility, and we, we really work on a society of people, you know. Um, but the last thing I wanted to say, just in relation to what you were saying, is um, the you know this, so obviously Bart, the death of the author, and this is you know a major movement in in literary criticism and a really really brilliant notion. Obviously, at the same time, it is works are written or created by a person, so you know we we cannot but help think of them when we when we read uh, a piece of work. But you know, two things can be true at the same time: a text as as a text can be read through a death of the author lens. And then, you know, we can also have some maybe personal biographical interest in the individual and, you know, what about their conditions allow them to write it and the personality and all this kind of stuff. But what has really happened now, and I think I talked about this at the beginning a little bit, and again, you know, when you said, let's read the Amanda Gorman thing, and I'm like, oh, this is the poem, this isn't about her. The trouble is it makes it so difficult to talk about it without being accused of being personal towards a person. And Mm -hmm. they're all of the, you know, um, intersections of their life because this regime demands that the individual be tied to the product because it is a market, because you cannot sell a piece of universal work that enters into the world that isn't tied to the story of an individual that has a set of um, genius criteria that we can, um, that they have some hope. So it's either a genius of the individual rather than you know, one of the reasons I really like Hegel is like, we are the workings out of, we are the personification of the contradiction of the universe. And our freedom is to choose to live into that working out. We are free to, in, to recognize ourselves as the working out of the universe. And that is completely contradictory to an individual who has either got a special set of traits that they can teach you a lesson, that they can offer you either as an expression of themselves, a certain wisdom, that can close your gap of lack. Or um, by using this sort of identity politics trick, uh, so we have this universalist idea from Marx and others, and then this, this identity politics trick where they take the aesthetics of the universal, but actually lock it down into sort of a slightly broader uh, uh, oppositional particularity of identity politics. And it's like, this young person has this wisdom because they are undivided, like the genius. Mm-hmm. This person, so it's an essential genie. It, it, when, when we talk about essence, it always is, can be marketized. But there is no essence. That marketization is an illusion. It's real, but it's based on an illusion. Yeah. I mean, I think just to go back to the Bart idea, you know, the, the, the death of the author is the birth of the reader. But I think, you know, there's a sense in which in the internet age, 
that reading itself is over you know Mm -hmm. they're scrolling without reading maybe or something like this and and you know there's some very interesting work on reading um in this regard in the in the the work of um angelicism one i'm going to use his (laughs) pseudonym Mm -hmm. um but someone who's very very interesting on this question of if you like how reading doesn't happen anymore you know so in a way the you could say like the rupee core poems are like not to be read in a certain sense you know they're to be consumed but not read perhaps you know because reading is something like you know would involve interpretation would involve you know it, i mean I, the idea of hermeneutics in a way comes from reading the bible and sort of scriptural study which would be to do with also thinking about kind of allegory and you know moral implication and the situatedness of the reader and obviously you know we don't have to recapitulate the whole history of reading the bible and and all of those kinds of things but you know I've been looking at a lot of work on technology lately because I'm teaching about Illich teaching Illich sorry and you know I've been reading like Jacques Ellul on the technological society and Lewis Mumford and there's a great quote I came across from Jacques Ellul the other day where he's he's writing this in 1954 and he's talking about the year 2000. So this is what he imagines the year 2000 will be like. He says, knowledge will be accumulated in electronic banks and transmitted directly to the human nervous system by means of coded electronic messages. There will be no longer, there will no longer be any need of reading or learning mountains of useless information. Everything will be received and registered according to the needs of the moment. There will be no need of attention or effort what is needed will pass directly from the machine to the brain without going through consciousness. And <laughs> uh, uh, somebody, I posted this, someone suggested that this technology already exists. It's called television. Um, but I wonder, you know, and we have this fantasy also in the Matrix, the idea of just inserting a chip, like, you know, that you're some kind of console or you're a machine and you can just insert something so that the the process of reading or studying or thinking, you know, is in a way bypassed completely, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And what you have then is the uh, the the effect, you know, that either you'll just simply know how to do something or that you'll have a particular feeling or sensation as if you're kind of like directly jacking into your CNS and, you know, and, and like that that's what I think you know, maybe we have to start thinking about these, you know, and, and look, it's it's obvious that everything we see and read and every image that we encounter has an effect on us, right? These are not neutral things, you know, even if you think, oh, I'm cynical, I'm, you know, I can take anything, you know, I can watch horror films and see disgusting things and I'm unaffected or whatever, you know, or that you become numb or desensitized. Um, it, on some other level, that's, that's simply not true. Like everything you consume has an effect on you. Um, whether it's food or images or, you know, pornography or rupee core poems or whatever. Um, (laughs) And so the question I suppose would be like, how do we, you know, by trying to pin down something of the affect or the the effect A or E (laughs) of these things to isolate the kind of sentiment or feeling that you know, if we say that these are regime aesthetics, or at least they're they're aesthetics that are rewarded by the regime and promoted by the regime, you know, what kind of creature is the regime trying, trying to, to create? 
Well, it's interesting when you say consume, the image that I really have is sucking on a teat, you know, Mm. and this is to not be human yet. This is to be the pre-verbal fetus born once into a world. You know, every substance is subject, everything is marked by contradiction. So you're still a contradictory being that, you know, working yourself out through evolution, but you do not enter into the human state or self-conscious division until you speak. And this sort of undividedness, it, it really, I mean, I say I drink a lot of milk, drinking a cup of milk here. Like this is, <laughs> it just, it's, it's, it, it really is like teat sucking. Um, and, and the thing is, we are, we are divided beings. And I think there's a huge antagonism that we feel between the teat sucking and the fact that we know that the world is more complicated and we are more complicated than this. We are. And it is frustrating when that complication, that nuance, that reason that we all, as speaking subjects, all have, all of us, every single one. Um, yeah. Like every single speaking subject. I think this is a profound, it, it's, it's aggravating, it's, it's disorientating, it drives you mad. It drives you mad. And everyone you speak to, even people who, you know, we all are engaged in ideology in many ways. You know, we can, we can, we do have, this is somewhere that I, I disagree with. I remember, um, uh, I think it was like a Michael Brooks talk. He was talking about, you know, everybody is within ideology. And it's like, we do have the capacity, I think, to get beyond ideology. We do. I, I disagree that we're always within ideology all the time. I think, you know, we, we inhabit, we are mired by ideology, but we can have moments where we can get a reprieve. I do believe that. Um, but... I think it's 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 this alienation, and you know it's it's it, we're we're treated like children who are no longer children. And what happens when you treat you know this is this you know that that mm. program like Super Nanny where you get that that like woman who's like mm. the like the large uh, neo Mary Poppins. And often if you watch that program, the problem the reason why the children are getting sort of like really badly behaved is that they're being treated so childishly. You know, yeah. they're not, they're not. So I was watching one episode <laughs> like 10 years ago, but a couple who'd very sadly really struggled to have children. They only had managed to have one child very late and they were protecting it as if it was this sort of crystal being. And it was like two or three and they would only put it in there. It's playpen. And it would, his whole, the symptom of his rage was all to do with escaping. So they'd take mm. him to a park and he'd like run away. And it was like, you know, it, it turned out that the nanny sat and observed and she was like, you know, you're, you're treating him like a child that's way younger than he is. And at some point, you know, he's, he's trying to overcome the boundaries that is his natural process. And I think that, you know, people, people are very angry about this. Very angry. Yeah, it's interesting to go back to the milk question, because I think, you know, as, as someone who has never breastfed, I, I think, you know, probably it did have an effect on being very hyperlexic and insomniac very early on. Like, I think, I think Absolutely. you know, it, it probably constructed a, a, you know, probably made the entity that I was more aware of its separation, you know, yeah. mu- mm-hmm. earlier, perhaps, in some ways, you know, and I, I like, for better or worse, definitely worse for everyone, you know, 
then you 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 have a subject that's that's um almost too independent yeah actually and too and too divided from others because you know you don't generate generate a bond or you don't generate a kind of you know dependency in the same way I mean of course you know my father fed me with formula milk right it wasn't that I wasn't fed obviously I'd be dead otherwise right but so so there was a substitute of course Mm -hmm. you know but it, it, it was not you know but you know, the, real milk. <laughs> this is the thing, though, because what what you know, and we we often like want to replicate, you know, in relationships, mm. we replicate earlier stuff. But like, there is a process, you know, and we are we are like qualitatively different at zero to compare to thirty, you know. And so this is, a, you know, I always I sometimes think like the, the recipe. And a friend of mine who's a psychoanalyst, and um, you know, always says about how when a child is too too verbal too quickly too mm. too emotionally engaged too good too um too upright and self-contained you know something's gone wrong quote unquote and yeah. obviously there's every the, the thing is that there's no not going wrong everybody no, exactly. it goes exactly. wrong in a different wrong way, in way. No, and no, the exactly. wrong is who we become and you know exactly i think i i was breastfed for many years i would refuse to stop but i also had a similar <laughs> thing to you that was caused by something different that wasn't to do with not breastfeeding um, yeah. but it, the same kind of thing happened and then i think that's partly maybe this is why we are interested in this kind of stuff is because we can't help but see it because we have differentiated in a different way and so we are aware you know there's a there's this winnicott idea of the fear of breakdown mm. and i was i really like this quote um Think of starting a book with it, LOL, which is like the apocalypse isn't coming, it's already happened. Uh, you know, yeah, and for yeah. a lot of people, yeah. their breakdown that they replicate or that they fear replication of is something they experienced very early on because they basically became differentiated too early and it's fucking terrifying. Yeah. So you absolutely have to go. I, I think I did this. You know, I actually did relive the I did relive the secondary, the split in a secondary way. Mm-hmm. It like, you know, yeah. my midlife, yeah, my absolutely. spectacular midlife crisis. Yeah. Like every aspect of it, in a way, was was relived, but consciously as an adult. Yeah. Um, yes. You know, and I, I, you know, and I, I think, uh, you know, at the risk of being indulgent, but I think the the part of the reason why I ended up having such serious and ongoing issues with alcohol is, in a way, a sort of attempt to, um, I don't know, to to make something in the world represent the thing that I didn't have or something. You mm-hmm. know, like to give it to imbue it with properties. That it that it doesn't have, you know, but that that we're lacking, you know, in some ways. So it's like you know, like red breast milk or something. No, know? absolutely, like, it is this but, a bit but, of oblivion. And I think I yeah, I but, started to drink exactly milk at thir- like where was it like twenty eight? And I think actually, I mean, I, this wasn't to replicate a breakdown because I think you know it just to send me yeah. to send me to sleep. And I think actually, yeah. Anyway, but yeah. well, exactly <laughs> yeah. because the things that I associate, you know, I came to understand that I associate with alcohol are thing are feeling warm mm-hmm. and um, being able to go to sleep. You know, yeah. I mean, it couldn't really be much more obvious in some ways, right? It's, there's always more complexity to it, right? And it's yeah. also to do with the first time you get drunk and what that, you know, that experience made you feel and, and those sorts of things, right? But, you know, just in some very, very vulgar way, yeah. you know, that it, it's obvious that it took on some of the properties that we would usually associate with, you know, being Breast breastfed. And, no, and exactly. Being, soothed I suppose in some ways as well and I think that that word vulgar is like very interesting because of course like (laughs) any symptom can mean anything you know we're all highly 
you know, have our own personal experiences and everything's granularized and everything can be broken down and down. We do therapy for years. But often I think that like the dynamic to a really well-trained psychoanalyst can be very obvious immediately. Because in a way, in the vulgar sense, we do follow, there is a universal of similarity of dynamics, which is we are yeah. all born. We are yeah. all, se- we all separate from our parents. And, and we do things go yeah. wrong in different ways. And we die. Yeah, those yes. are the three things. That we, things go wrong in the different in different ways. <laughs> and we have to pay taxes. <laughs> so people who to harp on by capital mobility, people who are corporations or have loads of money don't anymore. But everybody else does. So they're not. Uh, humans. No, you're quite, they're you're not quite humans. right. They're not you're humans. right. So that whole phrase, you know, the two certainties, death and taxes, isn't actually true. And that's I think that's why. actually the problem <gasps> of our world today. God, God, you're right because it's it's the same people who don't pay tax who want to live forever. Yes, exactly. No, honestly, they're the immortality junkies. Yes, and not to be too like again, I don't, wow. I don't think it's like any individual's fault. This is a s- systemic political thing Mm. but like i honestly we we and in a way not to be like everything we talk about is pointless but like unless unless we sort out this capital mobility issue or like find a way around it with like what's the point of anything you know but what do you mean by capital mobility issue in that i know we've discussed it before so basically just like no no if you can move money around to different countries basically society relies on Capitalism only functions insofar as it redistributes. You know that that the state is there to to mitigate. When state is tied to capital, there's no mitigation because they're acting on behalf of those people who want to avoid the mitigation. And we we are living we're living the non mitigated result of capitalism, and it's a shit show. Mm. And and it's generating all of these you know things on the level of the imaginary that we can really enjoy talking about but you know but but yeah no I think um this this so I think we 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 in a way it's understandable that we what we we feel anxiety in this world that is really unstable because of unpaid taxes <laughs> and the eroded family and every what well, the, the eroded family and stuff is in order to make more money out of us Mm. The individual person feels more precarious, is more likely to obey ideological, you know, commands of capitalism, has to pay more. You know, you save a lot of money when you're married and you have a family. Um, you know, if you parcel everybody off, that's that's the latest, you know, colonialized frontier to cross and to, and to profit from. Um, so we can see that, you know, maybe maybe my milk drinking, which I guess started in, in like 2016, was a symptom of the fact that I and everybody else feels very precarious because of the world that we've created for ourselves. Well, we haven't, but has ended up yeah, being created. Yeah, you've inherited. We've inherited. inherited. But, but um, and I think, you know, that the, the, obviously climate change is happening and stuff, but this sort of like apocalyptic fantasy expresses the fact that we know things have gone really, really fucking wrong. And this sort of childlike nightmare scenarios which are, you know, two things can be true at the same time. You can be a hypochondriac and still have a disease. This is the predicament of being human. Yeah. Um, and it, often I think the thing with psychoanalysis is people go thinking that it's going to fix anything, everything, but they realise that everything that they're afraid of actually exists, but they were being a hypochondriac about it. And when you can overcome the hypochondriac, you can actually face the problem, which is the same as the Marxist idea of take off the cha- you know, the flowers from the chain so you can pick the living flower, but the chains are still there and you've got to pick the living flower and it's fucking difficult. Um, but, but yeah, like I think that we we are seeking out teat sucking 
and the teat sucking is convenient to keep us from picking the living flower. Yeah. Um, Pick your milk wisely, kids. Yes, make sure it's... I'm not going to go on about vegans. (laughs) Make sure it's actual milk, not M-Y-L-K. But, yeah. (laughs) No plant-based milk here. Kids. I was so excited. This is okay. I'm not going to make a really phallic joke right now about <laughs> no, but I mean, I think wasn't that you know the last um, Mad Max film was kind of about milk, wasn't it? Was it? I haven't seen it. The the, the 2015 one. Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was an interesting milk thing that probably you know someone who's a better cultural critic could could explain. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, 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 you know, when you get down to it, like these fundamental substances or, or things that stand in for substances, let's say, yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of fascinating. I mean, I guess we already discussed oil when we talked about um, there will be blood, you know, and these kind of absolutely constitutive fundamental forms of, you know, the things that civilization is, are based on, you know, are they based on milk? Are they based on cum? Are they based on oil? <laughs> it's, based on- it's the thing. So oil to me, when you talk about that, it's like I. I what is a I, what is a cum based civilization, Helen? Well, do you know what I think though? That it's very this primal stuff. It's very childly. You know, it's it's the three year old's logic. But I do think that the the, <laughs> the 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 oil thing, and obviously there's a disgust with oil, rightly, you know, because yeah. of what it's done to the planet. But it is sort of like I okay, I really really hate. I, you know, I really, really hate being the prude that I am. Well, I'm not actually, but you know, is um, <laughs> is the is the like talking about periods all the time. But it is a little bit like the witch that is Mother Nature's mm. aborted period. Like it's her aborted baby is like the the oil. This like dead people that were you know these dead animals that are kind of like CPR. Yeah, they, they're, they're like dead cells. It's kind of gross. Sorry, everybody. I, I've, no, no, no <laughs> I, I have. A, it's very interesting. I mean, I have a friend who's vegan. But drinks her own menstrual blood and has done since she was a teenager. You, <laughs> you seem shocked. Um, but from a scientific point of view, it's actually very interesting <laughs> because, of course, I mean, menstrual blood is the shedding of the of the uterine yeah, yeah, wall with yeah. all of the nutrients that are sort of hyper there hypothetically right. for a child. So, Chai-chan. if you like, the the blood itself is very rich in you know minerals and vitamins and whatnot, right? So it, okay. and it's and it's produced by your body. So if you're a vegan, you're in a sense um, rather efficiently recycling in a positive way the um, your the, the nutrients that your own body, if you like, needs. You right. know, for your hypothetical. <laughs> I, I, mean, I, I think it's it kind of amazing. Logical. I I wouldn't go there personally, but it does sound like <laughs> this is like, like a classic kind of like this would be like the, the perfect like woke. Um, like like um what do you call it uh you know sort of like neo product you know like if you could find a way to like tap into the sort of like that like period obsessed market you could probably make quite a lot of money. no but but actually but the weird thing about this example is that you Most couldn't because yourself, this yes, is exactly. because this is free yes, exactly. you know there That's is there free. is in fact nothing to capitalize upon if you sell if you sell i mean yeah. i mean it, maybe you could sell a little but you can get like a moon cup or something and collect it. Anyway, that's it. That's all you need. Yeah, that's just, just that <laughs> you're, you're really, really appalled by this, aren't you? <sighs> this idea. 
I mean, Maybe. it's interesting. This person that I'm talking about is is actually a scientist and is not in the least yeah. bit woke. I mean, they yeah. they're vegan for utilitarian reasons. Yeah. Um, you know, and we could, you know, I argue with her about this, but it's, you know, it's it's interesting if you see what I mean, because yeah. it's, it, I don't, I don't, you know, but I know what you're talking about, which is something slightly different, I suppose, which is that, yeah, that it's like the, you know, Instagram poetization of menstruation. Yes, exactly. I think, I think that's maybe, and you're right, like when it is just a self, self-fulfilling thing, then, you know, you can't, obviously it's interesting because like there's the breast milk thing that a lot of people, you know, some women create lots of breast milk and then they share it with people to who can't produce breast milk to give to their children and stuff and that's something that I know that colostrum which is that thing was being um sold to bodybuilders maybe still is as as a product but you know that hasn't really been marketized but yeah there is this this, because you only produce it once I think or it's right at the beginning because and the, the, the thing I think they only really realized this a few I mean obviously people knew about it um intuitively but the fact that they didn't you know people understood what it was because basically so so colostrum is the milk that's produced after the birth so it's mm-hmm. the first milk after the birth and what it allegedly or apparently contains is all of the almost like a vaccine and <laughs> like let's not corrupt it by saying that but all of the because it immediately creates the antibodies sorry yeah yeah because yeah. basically the moment you've had your child then then your body creates like the antibodies and then you mm-hmm. feed them to your child so that it's protected so uh, it, it's Im- immensely powerful thing. Yeah. You know, it's a very, very important thing. So even so, I know that today that even if someone, a woman, has had a very difficult birth, and um, she's not able to breastfeed, they will take the breast milk from her um, using a pump and save the colostrum for the baby, rather mm-hmm. than you Just, know. So yeah, even yeah. if she's not well enough to breastfeed immediately, yeah. if you see yeah. what I mean, yeah, if yeah, the yeah. birth was very difficult. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was going to say, but interestingly. Um, Rupi Kaur, I think, became uh, famous, first of all, for this very aesthetic picture of herself on Instagram having a period. Oh, right. Okay. Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, but there, yeah, there is, some, there is something, this sort of like righteousness of the sort of female produced muck is very strange. Um, you know, it, it's it. But again, anything that is particularized and attached to a particular essence can um, endow a group or a person with a, a, a moral, a moral kind of transcendent charge. But it's just, you know, it is what it is. You know, no, but exactly. But then, but then, if it is what it is, then it's it's a substance, like you know. And of course, it's not immune from all of these ideological pressures. But it's also, yes, you know something as well i mean this is so the kind of either the i don't know the excessive um celebration of it or the excessive disgust or whatever do tell you something if you saw what i mean yes yes like like you know that it it's a thing that has these properties we can kind of speak about it in a neutral way you know and mm-hmm. say well this is what you know science thinks this thing is for right mm-hmm. and and we can say oh yes it looks like it has this function and you know, and we seem to be accurate enough about it. I mean, that's not to say that um, research into women's health is in any way um, sufficient, because it clearly isn't, right? There's loads of ways in which, like, the male body is taken as the paradigm and things that that only affect women like endometriosis and things like that are not taken very seriously. And lots of women are fobbed off when they have particular pain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's lots of 
There's loads of articles. Adam's rid. Nothing has changed. No, well, I mean, you know, exactly. I mean, you can have yeah. a, a, you know, there are there's some very interesting feminist work on, on this. You know that that male and female bodies are not similar in loads of ways, and that to 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 fantasize that there's a paradigmatic neutral body or that the the neutral body is male, it you know creates all these problems because you know there are differences and and um you know even though that's sort of like weirdly taboo but but this is is the thing that's very strange is that like again again talking about the the force-fed milk the child's Mm. logic force-fed milk and the reality of our complex divided subjectivity i think this is an example of it where we are hijacked by exceptions when we all know what the rule is and yes. this is the thing that I, and I think this is the trouble when you when you have a childlike logic is that two, you know, the adult thing is two things are true at the same time and we can handle that. And that is the nature of reality. This is the material nature of reality. This isn't just some like wisdom statement that you have to get used to life being difficult. It's like, no, life is difficult and that's what it is. And if it wasn't <laughs> for that, it wouldn't exist. And, you know, we, it's antagonistic and ruptured and beyond that, you know, around this rupture, two truths are true at the same time, which is, you know, we are born into whatever, and there are people who don't fit into this. And this is totally fine and should be accepted. Also, that we are born twice. We are born into the world as an animal and then born into language as a human, although we are always born into language immediately because language is the sort of thing that exists in the world. We are, we swim in, you know, we're talked to as children, but we enter into, let's say, self-divided contradictory subjectivity. And so therefore, of course, you can be born into a sex and experience a different gender. Like that's totally like, but it's it's this, the thing that's very ideological is when everything gets turned into absolute single truths. Mm-hmm. And they it is all contradictory because basically everything is contradictory. We live in a contradictory world, but when we ignore contradictory at the level of like, say an idea, the contradiction is always there. So we have, yeah. for instance, the this idea that, you know, we have sex and then gender, but then also all of these other things where it's like, well, that's not enough. And then we turn to a sexist absolutism because it's just not a, at, at this time where everyone is anxious, precarious, and we are living with this inadequate, absolutist, totalitarian, which is never total because it doesn't contain contradiction, logic of the playground. We, I think it drives us mad. I think it drives us mad. Yes. All right. In conclusion to our A-side, <laughs> <laughs> we have been driven mad. Everything is complicated. Uh, life is miserable, um, you know, but we must carry on talking, uh, which we will do on the B-side. So thank you very much to everyone for listening and uh, we really appreciate it. And we will see you no we won't see you you will be silently participating in <laughs> yet further ramblings from us in the b-side our, our collective teats will be oh. um i don't know like <laughs> overflowing overflowing with, with, with toxic nonsense. milk yes exactly. okay <laughs> all right <laughs> bye-bye